today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The tariffs are now official. As of Canada Day, the retaliatory tariffs against the United States have now been implemented. Uh, well, and Donald Trump has already declared tariff war for all intents and purposes against Canada with uh, a couple of more speeches over the last few days with some anti-Canada rhetoric uh, featured in, in just about all of them. Uh, also, the election of a new president in Mexico. Is there uh, more uncertainty about NAFTA? Well, Marvin Ryder joined us, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business uh, at McMaster University here in Hamilton. How was your weekend? It was great, thank you, although I spent most of it indoors. Uh, air conditioning. <laughs> air conditioning. That helps, that helps. Uh, things are getting pretty hot uh, with the NAFTA negotiations. Yep. Uh, Donald Trump's suggesting that he's not going to sign any NAFTA deal this year now. Uh, I kind of get the impression that uh, that he's declared that, you know, this anti-Canada thing's kind of working for my base. <laughs> I, th- I think I'm going to keep this along. And, and, uh, and frankly, on the other side of the border, Marvin, I mean, Justin Trudeau seems to have the same idea that, you know what, I'm getting a bit of a push here for my anti-Trump stuff, so we're not in any hurry to cut a deal here either. Well, it may also reflect the reality. So let, let's start with the story you alluded to in the lead-up to this. Uh, on the weekend, uh, Mexico elected a new president. I'm trying to get his last name correct. I think it's Lopez uh, Obrador uh, is his last name. Uh, now, while he was elected on the weekend, on July 2nd, he doesn't actually take office until December 1st. And so what you have now are a group of negotiators on behalf of the current president, Mr. Peña Nieto, who are, in essence, lame duck people. Now, yesterday, the new president of Mexico called Donald Trump. He also called Justin Trudeau. And what he said to Justin Trudeau is that the he's not going to undermine the current NAFTA negotiators, but he's going to add some people from his team to them to keep the discussion. Uh, alive until he takes office in early December. Now, what does all that mean? You pointed out that Donald Trump doesn't seem to be in a rush to sign anything. Uh, in fact, it doesn't, it doesn't really make a difference whether he wants to sign it. The first person who has to see it is the, is the House and the Senate, and they're now lame ducks as well with the uh, pending election coming. So even if we could get a deal done, and we might be able to, we might be able to get a NAFTA deal negotiated by, let's say, end of September, we weren't all that far apart a month or so ago, nothing could be ratified at least until 2019. And I think this is what everyone's realizing is the reality is no matter how hard we work at it, and maybe it's good to take a little bit of a pause. Now, our question from Canada's standpoint is pretty simple. Um, Yes, we've fired back on the retaliatory tariffs. We've matched Donald Trump dollar for dollar. We've done that under the auspices of NAFTA and the World Trade Organization. So we're not out of bounds at all. We're following protocols that are established internationally. Is that enough? And and uh, I think the question in the room, the elephant in the room, so to speak, is whether Donald Trump's going to retaliate even further. As you know, he has mused, mused about increasing the tariffs to include the auto sector. And that's where the gloves really come off. Uh, a 25% tariff or a 20% tariff on auto parts, on, on finished automobiles, what have you, would be massively disruptive to the Ontario economy, but also to the American economy. It, it'd be almost like in the, in the nuclear stories you used to see in movies that if one side pushes the button, the other one has to push the button, even if it means annihilation of each other, because you can't let one side win. Reminds me of the the movie failsafe. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't I don't think we're quite in that ballpark, but really the ball is back now in Mr. Trump's court and whether he is going to uh, do a second round or just live with it. He his reaction to the Canadian tariffs, counter tariffs was, you know, testy to say the least, but didn't necessarily say that automatically there'd be a second round. I suppose that's because he's a little more busy at the moment dealing with China. Yeah. 
Well, which is a, another wild card in this whole scenario. And we always need to keep in perspective, I guess, when we're talking about these. And I, I see some of the rhetoric on social media about, well, Trudeau this, Trump that, blah, blah, blah. We're not the only target here. Uh, when no. he, These tariffs that he instilled, uh, that's Germany, that's France, that's the U.K. And if he talks about auto sector tariffs, that's also going to impact those imports from those countries. Absolutely. In fact, that's why the European Union has just announced a series of counter tariffs. They amount to over $100 billion, and many of them do affect automobiles uh, uh, in this market space. Uh, also today in the Hamilton Spectator, if you read the story about the election of Mr. Uh, Obrador, um, they, they seem to imply that Canada has tariffs applied against it, but they're forgetting in the story that Mexico also has tariffs and have also done counter tariffs. We're all at war with, with Mr. Trump. And by the way, underneath all of this is the simple argument that what Mr. Trump is doing is illegal. He doesn't really have the power to put tariffs on. He only has the power in the face of national security issues. And some of his own people, Wilbur Ross, for instance, testifying in front of Congress, swearing on the Bible, said, there is no national security threat here. So uh, we've, we and most of the rest of the world have taken the United States to the World Trade Organization. In our case, we've also taken them to the NAFTA tribunal. And we've said that these are illegal tariffs that you're doing. We still believe that's plan A. Um, and Bill, maybe I should also note, I was, I was lucky enough to be invited to the press conference Friday morning yeah. that, that the Christian Freeland and the other ministers had. And I was very impressed. I was very impressed with how the, the liberal government under Mr. Trudeau has tried to not overreact. Remember Donald Trump put his tariffs against Canada on June 1st. We did not immediately follow. We took a month. We studied. And when they did choose these counter tariffs and they applied, took effect on Sunday, they chose sectors of the economy where Canadians would have a choice. So, you know, tariffs are always paid by the importing country. country. In this case, these are tariffs that Canada has put on American goods coming into Canada. And you might think, oh, my gosh, poor consumers were already taxed enough. But they've given you a choice. So a simple example is they're taxing ketchup, American ketchup. So if you love Heinz and you really like the taste of Heinz, you're going to pay a little more for it in about a month when the current supply wears out and they have to import some. But if you buy the French's ketchup, no tariff. And so every single case, they have put it on American maple syrup, but you can buy Canadian maple syrup with no tariff on it. And it gives people a choice. And I have to say I was very impressed how thoughtful, how careful they were, how they've uh, made sure the rhetoric is clear. This is not our choice. We are responding to the aggressor in this case. And, and they really have laid the, the, the foundation, I think, for a fair and reasoned response. But the question is, is, Trump is not a fair and reasoned person. He could do whatever he seems to want to do, it seems like. Uh, and I, I just don't know where he goes next. Here's the problem, though, because from a jurisdictional and, and, and legal standpoint, as you've already articulated, He's not supposed to be able to do what he's doing Correct. or what he's threatening to do right now. Correct. But that's only going to stop if somebody in the United States Congress stands up and says, Mr. President, enough is enough. You're, you're overstepping your bounds. Nobody's got the backbone to do that. Well, at least uh, the Democrats certainly do, but they've been doing that since day one. <laughs> right. So there is a bill in front of the House and the Senate from sponsored by the Democrats to, to slap Trump across the wrist. It's mired in um, you know bureaucracy and isn't going to see the light of day. Now, 
Having said that to you, Bill, there is a, a thought, uh, a school of thought in the United States that these tariffs could get reversed by the fall. Now, here's the model. Right now in the American electoral system, there are this is called primary season. Yeah. Primaries are run to determine who the candidates are actually going to be in the fall. And there are some Republicans who are being challenged by some other Republicans, and they really kind of want the Trump endorsement at this point. So they're not challenging Mr. Trump today. But once we get to September, mid-September, those races will all be set. And, and if you feel you've got a good chance of winning and don't need Trump to back you, you could take him on then. So there is a thinking, don't know how accurate it's going to be, that mid-September, late September, early October, we may begin to see that challenge in the House and the Senate that I have been expecting for more than a year. And then at that point, some of these tariffs may come off. That's also why America, America's economy is hurting just like Canada's economy. Suppose I buy Canadian uh, steel. Right now I have to pay a tariff on it. Well, in the long term, I should shift to another supplier. But I don't really want to because I like the quality of the stuff I'm getting. And look, if the tariffs are going to be reversed in three months, five months, well, this is just a nuisance I can work my way through. As well, Bill, this clause that, that Trump is using is called Section 232 that allows him to, uh, to put these tariffs on. The, the law also permits American companies to apply for an exemption to these. The example would be that I really need this steel, so even though there's a national security threat out there, I really need this. Please don't make me pay the tariff. Today in Washington, more than 20,000 20,000 applications for exemptions to these tariffs have been filed. Think about that in terms of a bureaucratic nightmare for Washington. And, of course, if this was to be extended to the uh, automotive sector, again, think of all the people applying for, oh, no, no, this doesn't apply, this shouldn't apply to us. It, you know, it, this is not as simple as Donald Trump thinks. No, but that's the way he's articulating it in his base or buying it hook, line, and sinker. So how does he reverse his... I mean, I, I know he's done it with other things, too, and simply claimed, hey, I just solved the problem that yeah. he created. It, I, I, we can always add that on to the end of the sentence. But, 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 you know, this is not a guy that says, you know what, I was wrong. No, he never says I was wrong, and he always has to find a way to declare victory. So that, I think, it becomes very important for any American negotiators in NAFTA, that as they uh, seek a deal and find a deal, which is probably going to mean some compromising of American positions, Canada and Mexico isn't going, are not going to sign a deal that wins for the United States and loses for the other two countries. They're going to have to find a way to sell that to Donald Trump. Now, I would point out that the rallies that we're talking about here in the last week or so, where, where Mr. Trump has decided to take pot shots at Canada, these are election-style rallies. This is in front of an arena or a football stadium with 20,000, 30,000 Trump supporters. He hasn't got a chant like, locker up, locker up. So, you know, he's got to find something to get them all revved up and Canada seems to be it. Bill, if I'm, if I'm quite candid about this, I'm not a psychologist, but I find it absolutely fascinating that the country he's decided to pick on is almost like the schoolyard bully has found the meek, mild, maybe somewhat brainy kid in the corner, the nerd in the class, and has decided to go after them, uh, knowing that maybe they can kick them around a little bit more, rather than taking on another tough kid like Russia, like China in the market space. And, and I think like like we often advise children in those schoolyard fights as much as possible, don't fight back, don't stoop to the same game. And that's why, again, I think Mr. Trudeau and, and Mr. Peña-Nato and I'm sure his successor, Mr. Obrador in, um, in Mexico, they're playing the game on the high ground, and I think that's the right way to do it. 
What about the new president, though? And you're right, it's going to be another few months before this guy actually takes office, but he was characterized during the election as a nationalist. Uh, yes. And, and, and I know that there are people in Mexico that were not pleased with Pene Nieto's uh, approach to NAFTA. They thought he was just giving in to just about everything, and, and uh, that Mexico was going to be the poor third partner in this whole deal. Uh, I, from the rhetoric this guy said during the campaign, he's not going to allow that to happen. Does that mean a tougher stance from Mexico? Well, uh, this uh, is a very interesting question. So let's talk for a moment about Mr. Lopez uh, uh, Obrador. Uh, he's the former mayor of Mexico City. Yeah. And, and when he was mayor of Mexico City, he seemed to have an ability to get a handle on the biggest issue in Mexico, which isn't NAFTA, but the drug crisis. Yeah. And in Mexico, there is nothing short of an epidemic of death surrounding the drug crisis. Which, uh, by the way, is very much tied into the immigration problem. Exactly. It, that part of the conversation doesn't seem to be happening in the States. But I, I right. digress. But no, no, but that's, I mean, that's all part of it. So I think I don't think he was elected on a let's rip up NAFTA or let's really stick it to Trump mandate. I think he was elected because he seemed to have some solutions in Mexico City that they'd like to see applied to the rest of the country. Um, he isn't sworn in until December 1st. Now, he is a left-leaning. It's the first president from the left I think it, I read somewhere it was 20, 25 years that we've had somebody from the left. So you're right. He's a nationalist, uh, maybe a socialist, if I can use that word. Um, on the other hand, I think he's also a pragmatist. And that was something else that in Mexico City, he did what he was capable of doing. He didn't try to shoot beyond the, the boundaries, stay within what he's capable of doing. And so I think he's going to be uh, really quite interested to see where these negotiations are. What are the commitments? Now, Trump, for instance, has said that a key thing from Mexico, not from Canada, but from Mexico, is a pledge to reduce their trade surplus with the United States. He actually wanted to see it in NAFTA, that Mexico was going to work to get their trade surplus down to zero. Well, there's no, there's no president that's going to sign that because, in fact, you aren't in control of it. The reason why you have a trade surplus is that Americans, for whatever reason, want to buy your goods. You don't control the companies, the individual companies that sell these goods. You don't control the American buyers who buy these goods. Uh, you know, if, if Trump really wants to get rid of trade deficits, he's got to get American companies to produce goods in a better way, a way that people want to buy them. So I don't think he's going to sign that. Having said that, I also don't think he's going to stoop to the easy rhetoric. Um, a, another character in all this is former Mexican President Vicente Fox, who is probably about the same age as Donald Trump. He'd be in his mid to late 70s. And, of course, now that he is no longer president, he is— He has uh, been unshackled. Unshackled. He is freed up to speak his mind. And, my God, does he ever speak his mind, often with an awful lot of profanity in his YouTube videos. But, again, the president of Mexico has the advantage that he doesn't have to deliver the tough message. He can poke Vicente, send him a little line. Vicente can get on his— his high horse, then he can be seen as the mediator. It's still a little early. Remember, he's just basking in the glow of the victory. We'll see a little bit more in the next probably month or two as he begins to make his cabinet appointments. Is he picking sort of rabid left or rabid right-wing people or more centrist people? We'll see when he starts to fill out his government. All right. Uh, now that the tariffs are in place, and the, as you mentioned, the European tariffs have already been in place for a few weeks now, uh, does the U.S. economy start to feel the squeeze enough yes. to, to put pressure on the on the, the White House to say, look, let's back off here? Yeah. So it certainly has begun to feel the pressure. We've seen the stock market performing poorly in the last few weeks. And the reason why the stock market 
market performs poorly is that you, you have a structure. Companies operate under an economic structure that is well established. And normally when you want to make a change to that structure, you give them six months notice, a year notice, and you also make just the smallest of tweaks possible. Otherwise, you upset the economy. They don't know how to react. Well, Trump, on the other hand, has been throwing rocks into the pond willy-nilly, sending waves bouncing all over the place. And, and uh, the stock market is trying to figure out what's going on here. And they don't like what they're hearing. There's, there's just major problems all over the place. Um, and I, I think, I don't, whether he's hearing the message just yet, no, because it's still in the early days. But as we head into summer, which is usually a bad performing time for the stock market anyway, pe- people take holidays, yeah. they don't pay enough attention, um, it may even lose more. And so, again, I think this is the reason why people believe that come the fall, when the full impact of these things start to set in, and possibly America starts to slide into a recession. There are, I don't, I don't want to scare anyone listening to us, Bill, but there are a few early warning signs that the American economy might be heading towards a recession, um, which isn't all that surprising. It was 10 years ago we had the last one. Yeah. These things tend to happen in about a 10-year wave. But, you know, Trump in particular is now treading on very, very thin ice. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful the right signals will get through. But... In Donald Trump's world, he can have blinders on and choose to see what he sees. We know that to be a fact. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure, sir. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Last uh, Friday, of course, uh, Doug Ford and his cabinet were sworn in, and uh, we have turned the page at the new government at Queen's Park and here in the province of Ontario. Uh, we already knew some of the things that, uh, that now Premier Ford said he was going to make his priorities. One, of course, was the... Uh, cap-and-trade program, which uh, we've talked about extensively. But uh, not too long after the swearing-in, uh, newly minted uh, Ontario Health Minister Christine Elliott announced that Ontario's uh, new ministry and new program will now nix this idea about free meds for youth with private coverage no more. This, was, of course, was a, not just a campaign promise, but something that was enacted by the, uh, the previous Wynn government. Uh, so with this, uh, the news release issued on Saturday says the move is intended to make the program far more cost-effective. But... It has brought some howls of derision from not just opposition members, but other advocates that are saying, well, this is the thin edge of the wedge. This is the first of all these cuts that the uh, conservatives always do. But is this a practical measure, or is this uh, shades of the common sense revolution with some of the massive cuts we've I've got a couple of different perspectives on this. I want to, first of all, bring Stephen Frank into the discussion. Uh, Stephen is uh, with the Canadian Life and Health Insurance Association and joining us on the Bill Kelly Show to give his perspective. Stephen, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Uh, good morning, Bill. It's my pleasure to be here. Did you anticipate a move like this, Stephen? Uh, no, we didn't. Uh, we didn't know this was coming, but... Um you know, think it's a, a very wise decision that they've taken here, and I think quite a balanced approach to making sure Ontarians get the medications they need, and that it's being done in a fiscally responsible way. And and equally importantly, that we're doing it in a way that that protects and and maintains the benefits that so many Ontarians benefit from. You know, there's almost nine over nine million people currently in Ontario with private coverage that serves them extremely well. So, you know, you want to make sure when you're Making changes like that, you're doing it in a way that that's protecting what's working, and you're looking to fill in those those areas where we need to do better. Was uh, was the was the move by the previous government, Stephen, in your mind, then an, an overreaction and an overcompensation? Well, I mean, I think they identified a, an important issue, which is that there is a small number of Ontarians that aren't getting the medications they need, and and for some of them, it's due to cost reasons, and so that's an important issue. We've always said that we can do better there. But I think what you don't want to do is, is um, you know, replace what's already working 
when there are more tactical and, and more, I guess, more, you know, more um, fiscally easy and responsible ways to do that. So we think this approach going forward is the better one, and, and uh, we're quite pleased with the announcement over the weekend. Well, where does this leave that group that you just referenced, though, Stephen, that, that, that could not afford that? And and I'm sure you and your experience, because I certainly have in my experience on this program over the years, I uh, heard from a number of people that says, you know, yeah, my doctor gave me a prescription for whatever. I can't afford it. I just can't. I don't have a drug plan. I, I can't do anything about it. Well, I think that's the. I think that's what's such a good element of this announcement. What the government have essentially said is that if you have private coverage, use your private coverage. If you don't, we'll continue to offer the OHIP Plus program. So there won't be any gaps going forward. This this hasn't created any any gaps or challenges that that didn't exist prior. What it's simply done is done it in a way that government's not footing the the entire bill, and it's also done it in a way that that protects and maintains the private benefits that so many people have. And so you know, it's a, I think it's a really responsible approach. I don't think it's going to create any gaps, and and I think it's a great path forward. Well, one of the criticisms of the win plan that that I heard on numerous occasions was that was that of redundancy uh, from people that were saying, "I'm paying for a plan, but I'm not using it." So, in other words, I'm I'm giving X number of dollars towards premiums every year or month or whatever it is that they're paying, and said it's never being enacted. So, why am I paying the premiums? And they said, you know, if if this is going to stay in effect, then I really don't need the insurance. Well, that's right, and that that would have been the fact, and that's why I'm referencing the fact that you know what. The previous government's approach really, you know, put at risk those benefits because people would have, you know, logically said, I won't continue to pay for private coverage when I've got a, a government program. The challenge that people run into, though, and very quickly bump into, is that private coverage is quite broad. So a typical private plan would cover somewhere between twelve and 14,000 medications. The ODB formula, or the Ontario Drug Plan, covers about 4,400, so it's about a third. And so it put people in a difficult situation of saying, you know, boy, I, I do like the fact that I've got that really broad coverage. I like the fact I'm getting covered for new cancer therapies and all the new rare disease drugs. And I like the fact I'm getting the newest antibiotics and all that kind of stuff. That's important to me and I want to keep that. But if you are if you enact reform in a way that puts that at jeopardy, then you could end up in a bit of a lose-lose where people lose access to those medications. And, you know, you didn't really need to do that. Government would, was taking on a cost and... and uh, and, and a bill that they didn't need to assume. And so this approach is a better one, I think. It allows people to keep what they already have, keep that really strong private coverage, and they're going to do the right thing and make sure that everyone gets the medications they need. So at the end of this, I think it's a, it's a, it's a wise, balanced approach to address the issues we're, we're facing in Ontario and, and more broadly in Canada could, could serve as a good model too. Steve, I want to ask you about something that I, I know has concerned an awful lot of people, and, and I wanted to bring it to your attention, especially in light of this, this policy change. Uh, announced by the new government. What about those people that may be in a situation where they have a plan and uh, a certain prescription or a certain uh, protocol is, is is called for? It's not covered under the plan. Uh, the, the feeling I was told uh, is that the Ontario Drug Benefit Program may actually fill that gap for them. Now, is that still going to be the case? Uh, can, can they go back to the drug, drug benefit program if they say, my insurance carrier is not going to pick this up? I can't afford it, whatever it's going to be. It could be, as you say, cancer therapies. There's lots of other expensive medications uh, that fall under that umbrella as well. What do those people do? Well, I don't, I don't think that's the direction that the, the challenge is going to work. I mean, I'm, I, like I said, generally, in almost in all cases, it's the private plans that provide the quicker and, and more um, comprehensive access. And so what we were finding is when we were transitioning children from private coverage onto OHIP Plus for the last six months, 
we were running into situations where things that they had been on for, you know, potentially years were no longer covered. And so I think that's probably more, I'm not sure that you're going to have a lot of those issues where people are not getting coverage privately and that would be getting it on the public plan. But, but again, that may be one of the details that we'll have to discuss with the province. If a, if an employer decided not to cover a particular therapy and it was covered on OHIP Plus, we'd work with the province to, to find a way to get that individual covered. The intent here, you know, from what I understand, and I, I, I believe the minister is to make sure everyone gets the medications they need. And so we'll work with government to make sure that that happens. Well, it does happen because I know, and again, this is a family that had a, a young person that needed a certain thing. I think it was like 600 bucks a month or something. Pretty expensive stuff. And the carrier simply said, no, it's not covered. Sorry, we're not going to do this. Uh, and I guess the question they had for me, which I, I didn't have the answer for at the time, is well, what, what options do they have at that stage? Yeah. Well, if that, if that $600 a month is something that's covered on the Ontario drug benefit, then we'd work to put that, that child onto the Ontario drug plan. Um, but if it's not, and there's, you know, I, I don't know the specifics of that case, but there are some therapies in Canada that are just deemed experimental or that are not covered by anybody. And in those instances, you know, those are difficult scenarios, but those are, would be the choice that the province would have made and that individual's employer plan would have made. Um, so, you know, that's, you know, I guess the scenario that would have happened. But if it was being covered by the, by the provincial plan, we would work with the province to make sure that that child was getting coverage through that program. So and just, we, we, uh, we integrate with, we, we do that all the time. You know, we work with, in every province in Canada, we integrate, we call it integrate. So if you're not covered privately and it's covered on the public plan, we work with the province to make sure that individual gets the coverage they're entitled to through their public programs. Well, so I, I just want to underscore that for the sake of our listeners there, that you p- feel pretty confident with this protocol that's being put in place now by uh, by the minister that uh, that those gaps are going to be filled up and there aren't going to be people falling through the cracks? Yeah, well, that's the goal. So we need to sit with the minister this week and go through those details and how we are going to work together. It is a change. So we'll have to make sure we have the operational processes in place. But um, I'm you know quite confident that a typical private plan would, would provide excellent coverage. If for some reason the wasn't being covered on the private plan and it was covered provincially, we'd find a way to make sure that individual or that child got the coverage on OHIP plus. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, Steve. I understand yeah, because hypothetical. The, yeah, so no, because the government wasn't yeah. too specific on details when they announced yeah. this, and uh, the minister was not available. So a lot of people with questions, and uh, and I'm hoping that in the fullness of time, those things are all going to be answered. But I appreciate you stepping up and at least talking about us. And it's, it is somewhat of a hypothetical situation, but we'll have to see how it rolls out. Thanks yeah. so much for this today. My pleasure. Great talking with you. Stephen Frank, Canadian Life and Health Insurance Association, feeling pretty good about the announcement from uh, Ontario Health Minister Christine Elliott about uh, changes to this. Uh, now, I know that, as I say, some people are still feeling rather concerned about this, that this is the beginning of a series of cuts, and uh, they looked at health care as one of the areas that this government may be looking at to try to find those $6 billion in savings. Richard Brennan has uh, been there, done that with a lot of these things as governments have changed and some of the policies that come into play. Uh, retired journalist who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many, many years. He joins us to uh, talk about the announcement and the uh, fallout from it. Richard, how are you doing today? Just fine, Bill. Yourself? Good. Uh, uh, you've seen some of the criticisms that this is the, the beginning of, of a, the, the common sense revolution, part deux, uh, that it's going to be cuts, cuts, cuts. Uh, others, and you just heard from somebody from the Insurance Association, said, no, this is a good deal. This is going to save people money, and it's, uh, everybody's going to be happy. Everybody's going to be covered. Which, uh, which, uh, which one of those scenarios are you buying? Well, you know, to, to think that uh, health care is untouchable is, is ludicrous. Um, you know, 
there are all kinds of you know areas it can be trimmed and improved. And I think I got I got to side with the uh, progressive conservatives on this one because I think it makes sense. Why would you get double coverage, or why would you have coverage from the province if you've already got it through your parents' plan or whatever it might be? It, 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 it means looks to me like this could save them, save us, you and I, and everybody else out there. A ton of money, quite frankly. The other aspect of this, too, is, is I wanted to be specific about this, because when the gov- the Wynn government made the announcement, Richard, if I recall, I don't have the press release in front of me, but I'm just, I remember the, covering the story on a number of different sessions here. Uh, they talked about for, for youth, obviously, but also for seniors. And my understanding is that the seniors element of this is not being touched. Well, they better not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now we're getting personal. Now we're, just a minute now. <laughs> um, no, well, I mean, that would be, and, and I have to say that I'm a senior, but uh, that would be uh, folly to, to get involved, because that's something that's existed all along. This other, this, you know, remember, this other program, you know, up to 25 is fairly new. Yeah. And the seniors, as you know, program has been around forever, quite frankly. So I, I don't, I'm not surprised that they didn't touch that. But it makes a great deal of sense to try and look at ways to save money. And in this case, I don't think, you know, I could be wrong, but I don't. It doesn't seem to me that anybody's going to be hurt by this. Well, I mean, let's let's be pragmatic here about it. I understand that there are some people that are just going to, you know, respond along party lines, whether you're an NDP, liberal or conservative supporter or green supporter, as the case might be. And, and you have to expect that sort of thing. But the reality is, as, as much as you may have looked and said, boy, you know, the premier, Kathleen Wynne, when she was the premier, did this and this, and this was a great idea for families, et cetera. Uh, and and as we look through the, the balance sheet on, the, on the, the, you know, the good and the bad of the Wynne government over the five years that they were in power, yeah, there's some good stuff there. But fiscal prudence was not at the top of the list. Um, I mean, there probably could be more efficient ways to do that. The thing that scares people, I think, Richard, is as soon as you say fiscal prudence and, and, and efficiencies, people start thinking, oh, my God, they're going to slash things that we need. Well, no, the, you know, the things, uh, you know, the critics... And rightly so, you know, some of them are basing their opinions on history. You know, God, the next thing you know, they're going to be closing hospitals, and they're going to be doing this, they're going to be cutting that. And this doesn't, to me at least, suggest that at all. I know people are always concerned when health care is touched in any way, shape, or form. But again, it's not untouchable. You, It's a huge part of our budget, you know, getting up there you know, around, what, I guess 40%, almost more than 40%. And so you have to look at ways to improve it. And, and this, this is one, and this is one that seems to make sense to me. I, I don't know what, uh, I, I'm sure you've had all kinds of people call and say this is, you know, the beginning of the end. Oh, I, I just don't buy that. Yeah, so there's another element to this as well, is that, you know, they're saying, well, it's so early into the mandate, like, you know, like 24 hours after, you know, she's sworn in as minister, she starts making announcements. But the, the reality here is that is that the staff and, and the people that are going to be working in this and the bureaucracies, uh, they've been they've been on this stuff for a long, long time. I mean, it's not as if they just said, OK, let's uh, let's have a look at the books here. Plus, I mean, the minister herself has spent the last, what, two years? As the patient advocate for the the previous government, so the, I mean, healthcare is not new to her. No, no, she's, and you know, 
you know, with Christine, this is this is not a person that you would expect to slash and burn the healthcare system by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I would suggest that that was put to her, quite frankly, that, you know, the, we've got to do major cuts to health care. I wouldn't be surprised to see her resign, quite frankly. She's always been known as, as a moderate conservative oh, a- anyway. absolutely, and very much into health care and, and social services. So, you know, she's come, she's come up with a plan. You know, people shouldn't be surprised that this government, right out of the chute, is making some major decisions. Well, there has to be major decisions made because of the financial situation the province is in. We're, you know, the, you know, God bless the last government in many ways, but on the other hand, it was everything for everybody, and you just can't do it. You, you can't give everybody everything they want. And sure, it would be nice if we could afford it, but we just can't afford it. And we are going to find out that you know the books. And I'm, I'm kind of, you know, telling the government what to say before they say it. That I think you're going to find out they're in a lot worse shape than we ever ever expected. As I mentioned off the top, Richard, you, you've been there and done that. As every government has taken office and, and change, changing of the guard. Uh, and and I know there were some people, for instance, I've seen some of the editorials over the weekend that said, "Hey, you know, Mr. Ford, don't go so fast." Uh, I think the reference there is probably to cap and trade and, and the ramifications of, of a decision to say that's it, we're going to cut it. And 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 maybe there's some legitimacy in in that criticism. But you, everybody, no matter who it is, when they take over, there's going to be some low hanging fruit that can say, you know what, we can do that right away, and that's going to save us a few bucks, and it's not really going to hurt anybody. Well, they're looking for six billion dollars. Yeah. So they got to start somewhere. Why why should people be surprised at that? I mean, you know, I I can see that they might have had concerns because he wasn't specific of where that $6 billion was going to come from, and I certainly side with those folks. On However, he is, you know, they're going to try and find the savings to get that $6 billion in. They've got to start somewhere, and there's going to be a nip and tuck everywhere. That's that's the way I see it. Summertime is usually a pretty slack time. Now, I understand there's a new government, and, and uh, Premier Ford has suggested he actually may bring the legislature back. Uh, to deal with a couple of these issues, but do you get the sense that these guys are are, are going to start doing a whole lot of stuff like pronto, even through July and August? I, I would I would say you know this month I think you'll find that they're pr- pretty busy. August I'm not so sure, but we'll see. You know it just depends what uh, you know how much they have on their uh, on the table where they could think they can make savings. And they're fairly new to a government, you know, governments. Not fairly new, they are new to governments. So where are they going to find these savings? And I think they have to really sit down and, and take a look. This is, like you said, this is low-hanging fruit that they, they found, and that's good. But on the other hand, you just can't rush into, into $6 billion savings. That's all there is to it. The, you know, the other part of this, of course, is, is the acclimatization to the job. And, and I know people like Christine Alley had been there, done that. Jim Wilson has, has been a cabinet minister, of course, under the previous governments, uh, the Eves and, and Harris oh, governments. Yeah. So these guys know that. But there still has to be a period where they have to sit down with, with ministry staff with whatever portfolio they've got and say, okay, where are we? And that, that's got to take some time. Did you, uh, as, as an aside, uh, they also the decision to uh, freeze managers uh, salaries. Yeah, I wonder how that's going over in behind, you know, behind <laughs> the uh, the walls there. <laughs> rumble, rumble, rumble already. Well, you know, I, I'll tell you right now, I don't think there's good 
going to be too many people who uh, cry themselves to sleep over, you know, managers and the bureaucracy with having their wages frozen. you got to remember, for 15 years, they had it very good. Well, you know, while the rest of us, and I you know, include myself, you know, the Toronto Star or, or you know, at the auto industry, or you're getting 1% increases, they were getting they were getting far more than that. Yeah, that's uh, that's going to be one of the interesting stories as uh, they start. You know, how they're going to deal with the civil service always a, a a problem for any government. Richard, we got to break it off at this point. Thanks so much for this today. Great talking with you again. Thanks, Bill. Richard Bye. Brennan, of course, uh, uh, formerly uh, with the Toronto Star, of course, covered Queens Park for so many years. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, uh, I don't know what you did over the weekend. Hopefully, it was a good time. Uh, Stephen Harper visited the White House and uh, not as a tourist. The uh, former Canadian Prime Minister visited the White House yesterday amid tensions between Canada and the U.S. that are well documented now. We know about the tariff circumstances and the NAFTA negotiations and, and uh, well, some of the, the bombastic rhetoric that's going back and forth uh, more one way than the other, as it turns out. Uh, but as well as that, of course, the Canadian government uh, didn't get notified until it was told by U.S. protocol experts. There was actually an email that was intercepted. Uh, inadvertently, that uh, mentioned that Harper was going to be there, which is not really the way that former leaders do things. Uh, I mean, that's the protocol. I mean, you can decide yourself whether it's right or wrong, but that's the protocol, which uh, didn't seem to matter to Mr. Harper as he went along here. But uh, uh, one of the overriding questions, obviously, is when he was meeting with folks in the White House, uh, was he there trying to help the Canadian situation or hinder it, or you know, just what was the motivation? We don't know yet, but we can certainly speculate. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Peter Grafe, professor of political science at McMaster University. How are you doing this morning, Peter? Morning. Good. Great to have you with us today. Uh, let me ask you about the protocol question, first of all, because that seemed to raise an awful lot of eyebrows. Uh, former leaders, prime ministers, presidents, etc., when they, they go and make non-visits like this, most part, it's with the blessing of, of the, the sitting government. I mean, Brian Mulroney went down and talked to Trump and, and other trade officials, a former prime minister. But he did this on behalf of the, of the Trudeau government. Uh, Stephen Harper certainly didn't do that. Is, is, is that an egregious error? Well, I mean, I suspect Stephen Harper thinks back to, for instance, when Jean Chrétien went to visit Vladimir Putin at the same time as he as prime minister was uh, kind of pushing hard on the, the question of Ukraine. So uh, the Ukraine. So I think you know, for the kind of question of protocol, he probably takes a more partisan point of view, and presumably also in this case, he, he's likely going to make this visit not in uh, the uh, as being a former prime minister of Canada, but probably more related to his other concerns, whether it's with you know Harper and Associates or being the head of the International Democratic Union, which is kind of a club of conservative parties in in Europe and North America. Um, so it may be in those roles that he was acting and felt as a result, if he did it quietly, uh, there was no need to, to go through formal protocol. He's actually uh, made a move, Peter, in, in the last couple of months to, to try to increase his profile. He, he pretty much laid low for the first year and a half or so of, of the uh, the Trudeau uh, government uh, for whatever reason. As you say, he wasn't just sitting around uh, you know, twiddling his thumbs at home. He started his own company, but he started to raise his profile once again, attending a couple of international conferences and, 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 and being a little more vocal about some of the issues of the day. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard for politicians to uh, leave the stage, and particularly for someone like Stephen Harper, who didn't really have much of a job before he became a politician. So, you know, his experiences, for instance, being with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, not the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, the um, the National Citizens Coalition, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, acting on the public stage and being an advocate, 
so I think, yeah, it would be hard for him to, to sit back and not be engaged in public affairs. Uh, on the other hand, as well, he has his book coming out in a few months, probably wants to do a little publicity for it. But I mean, I mean, a big part is, for instance, this uh, presidency of the International uh, Democratic uh, Union. He's again, he's trying, I think, to be a an ideas man for the global uh, conservative movement or the global right, and uh, that involves being present uh, in a number of ways in the public discourse. What about the discussions uh, with uh, with Larry Kudlow? We know that happened. I, and the rumor before this happened was that he was going to meet with John Bolton, the security advisor. I'm not so sure that that happened. I don't see any photo ops or evidence of that, but. Uh, clearly, the, the White House is always a busy place, and there's a whole lot of people that you can have meetings with uh, without the president necessarily being there. Uh, was it that agenda? I mean, because you got to figure, Peter, that NAFTA came into the negotiations, or the discussions, rather, and so did, so did the tariff situations. Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably three potential explanations, and maybe a mixture of them. I mean, the first is, ideologically, Stephen Harper's been an advocate of a global free trade agenda, uh, I mean, when he was Prime Minister of Canada, he entered into a series of uh, trade agreements, uh, you know, whether it was with Panama or Colombia or pushing Pacific trade agenda. And so presumably he's worried uh, by the increased protectionism coming out of the United States. Uh, so, I mean, that would be one explanation. Another would be in his role as the head of this international democratic union, he's been hearing from uh, conservative leaders in Europe who are unhappy with what's happening and are worried about what's happening in their own parties. If, you know, conservative parties have been very pro-free trade, but they have an electoral base which is also susceptible to an idea of closing borders. And so, uh, you know, they, they, I think, see Trump as a danger in terms of their own party cohesion, and so they're maybe pushing uh, Harper to go and deliver that message to, to Trump. And a third possibility, of course, is this whole trade dispute has uh, been a godsend for Justin Trudeau in terms of rallying Canadians uh, you know, his polling numbers are back up. Uh, it's been harder for Andrew Scheer to really get a word in edgewise. So, I mean, a final thing maybe to make the point that, uh, you know, if the Americans want to see, uh, you know, the end of Justin Trudeau, if they want to see a replacement by a more conservative uh, party in next year's federal election, uh, ramping up these public trade disputes uh, isn't going to do that. If anything, it's going to ensure the re-election of Mr. Trudeau. So that's maybe a third reason why uh, Harper might have gone to to deliver a message. Yeah, because I know that even when the, the, the tariffs were announced, I mean, there was always some concern about, well, what's going to happen here and, and how Stephen Harper going to respond. He, he was, I guess, on Fox News just a couple of days after that, and, and he did basically say that the Trump was wrong to do this and about the deficit and about the trade surpluses and uh, did not say Trudeau was right. He just said that the American position was wrong. He was very guarded, I guess, in his defense of the Canadian position there. Because uh, I, I just think it would be very difficult for a guy like Stephen Harper, Peter, to, to put any wind into Justin Trudeau's sails at this stage. Yes, and I mean, certainly last fall, he, you know, took the tried to take the wind out of it and was, in fact, criticized when he came out and made a number of critical observations about the Canadian negotiating position. And people began asking, well, was he really negotiating for the United States? So, I mean, I think he's had to change his, his position, although, of course, if you go on Fox News, uh, you know, attacking uh, the United States position is probably a hard one to do. So, I mean, I think he's walking a fine line. I mean, we have seen in recent days uh, a number of organizations that would normally be fairly pro-Republican, have come out and criticized the president's trade agenda. So whether it's the uh, American Chamber of Commerce uh, came out in pretty strong language about uh, this was the wrong course to follow, or, you know, the auto manufacturers who, I mean, I think Trump's making the cases that benefit by uh, increasing tariffs, but they also came out to say, even the American ones, that in fact this would really damage their capacity to invest in next-generation technologies. 
and would risk shutting them out of other markets. So, uh, you know, I think, you know, as well, there's a space for uh, people, you know, sort of ideological free traders like Harper, uh, to draw on some things being said in the United States to, to provide some cover for that kind of criticism. The very fact that it's Stephen Harper doing this is an interesting uh, scenario, though, Peter, when you look at this. He, he, we, don't, we know he did talk to Larry Kudlow, who, of course, is one of his financial advisors, former uh, financial guy from Fox News, and I guess he was on CNN before that. But anyway... Uh, here you've got a guy who is considered to be a, a, a right-of-center conservative, although he pretty much governed from the middle when he was the prime minister here, but a free trader. And and uh, and in Trump's mind, that may seem oxymoronic, but at the same time, the fact that he did that, uh, and other people like Elizabeth May over in the U.K., uh, and, and Angela Merkel in Germany, uh, very much the same way, to understand that, look, you can be a conservative and be open-minded about trade, which is something that doesn't seem to be a common theme in the Trump White House. Yeah, I mean, I think for the Republicans, they've really been the party of free trade. I mean, it's the Democrats who have been the ones more prone to to raise the question of protectionism. So, I mean, the real uh, change, and I think the worry for uh, free marketers, is to see conservative parties uh, in other places, and I mean, maybe Brexit was an example of this in Britain as well, play on a kind of populist, anti-trade, anti-globalization rhetoric, you know, coupled as well, usually with kind of anti-immigration viewpoints, uh, and succeed in rallying the conservative base. And so I think there's a danger for those leaders who, you know, given their ideological commitment to uh, free markets, uh, to see those conservative parties maybe take a more protectionist direction. And so, I mean, that's certainly not a message that I think uh, Harper could win with uh, Trump, and I, I noticed that he didn't go and speak with Trump. <laughs> I think so the message was probably sent much more directly to the economic advisor to, to note a number of the economic and political ramifications of continuing with uh, a kind of a hot trade war. What are the chances of, of that message getting to the ear of the president, though? Uh, I would say a small. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, ultimately, you know, the president is a powerful figure in the American system of governance. But he's only able to act if, uh, you know, many of his arms through these different agencies are, you know, willing to go along with every word. In places where you see a kind of a building of resistance to those moves, then things have to be negotiated. And I think that's part of the strategy here, and part of also the Canadian trade strategy more generally, trying to hit, you know, state capitals, trying to hit different industry groups to make the case for free trade, is is to note that, you know, there are ways in which in the American system, if you build resistances along the way, the president has a harder time putting his agenda into action. And so I think that's really the the strategy here, is to try and find like-minded ideological conservatives uh, uh, to push uh, that, that agenda. Uh, I mean, the one that might get back to Trump is more, you know, are you re-electing Justin Trudeau? If you've had enough of this guy, maybe you've got to hold off on the criticisms uh, and and find a way to allow the conservatives to beat him in the next federal election. I, I'm wondering if that was part of the message to to Cudlow on, on yesterday, I guess it was over the long weekend here in Canada anyway. Uh, look, at hold your powder on this, don't do anything rash, because there's an election coming up in Canada, and, and you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. And uh, I'm not so sure that Trump would necessarily understand that, that in, unless somebody kind of brought it to his attention. But I, I don't disagree with you that that had to be at least part of the message that that Harper brought. But what about the concept, Peter, of of Harper looking at himself as, as a lone wolf here? In other words, he's never going to be an advocate for the Trudeau government, but he, he does want to be an advocate for free trade and obviously for the Canadian economy. So he could look at himself as simply saying, look, I'm, I'm doing this on my own because I believe in the country and I believe in the concept. Uh, I'm not going to do it on behalf of the government, but I'm just going to see what I can do. And, and uh, let's face it, I mean, he could come out of this smelling like a rose if, if something good happens out of these meetings. Yeah, I mean, I, I can expect that he would, you know, take some credit for that. I mean, it's unlikely that would happen in the short term. 
But I mean, certainly, I mean, one possible future for Stephen Harper, and then I think taking the leadership of the International Democratic Union as an indication of this, is that he wants to move beyond the Canadian stage. And, you know, I haven't had a chance to read his uh, memoirs that are coming out, but I think part of it is actually less about memoirs and more about a global agenda uh, for governance, you know, presumably uh, tied to free market principles and, uh, you know, Harper's idea of political liberty. And so, you know, if his, if his goal is to actually play that more global role, to see himself as a sort of senior statesman, not in Canada, but as one of these people, you know, who, who globe trots, I mean, a bit like Paul Martin has done since he was prime minister and gets involved in different global governance initiatives, then this kind of meeting, uh, you know, is important in terms of developing that kind of reputation as someone who has a, a global governance agenda and is able to have meetings with people to try and push it forward. He's always relished that. He, we saw signs of that while he was still in office, though, didn't we, Peter, with his work, uh, with well, obviously with Israel, but, I mean, in a number of other initiatives, uh, including at NATO, obviously, you know, and the, and the relationship they had with Vladimir Putin at that time. Harper tried to push himself onto that stage with some of the other movers and shakers of that time. Yeah, I mean, I think he's someone of great ambition. Uh, he's someone who, as a prime minister, worked hard, uh, was probably more intellectual than uh, the prime ministers before and after him. You might have to go back to someone like Pierre Trudeau for someone who, or maybe Brian Mulroney, who read as thoroughly uh, the briefing notes and really was paying attention to uh, you know these these questions. And so, I don't think being a Canadian pundit is really that interesting to him. I think his ambition is really to try and shape. Uh, shape the world. I mean, in particular, because he is uh, one of the more ideological prime ministers we've had. He has a real strong sense of what's right and what's wrong, whether we agree with that or not, and is trying to push that uh, globally. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that is his next step, is to try and find a way onto that stage. And I mean, there's so many organizations internationally of former state leaders or former, uh, you know, high executives Uh, to play these roles. So, I mean, there'll be no shortage of opportunities for him to make his mark in that manner. It's like, the well, they used to call the Seniors Tour, now it's the Champions Tour in golf. It's it's the senior citizens, the guys that have been there, done that, uh, that are still involved. And and, and from a political standpoint, Peter, I think you're bang on. I mean, you had Tony Blair after his time as Prime Minister in the UK. Uh, Certainly Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton tried to exert that sort of pressure on the international stage, too. Does Harper see himself as a member of that club, that organization? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, just like there's political parties uh, nationally, right, internationally there's different tendencies, and so, I mean, we have someone else like Bob Ray, who I think has been quite yeah. active in that, and uh, maybe he's more in the federalism club, but, you know, there's the social democrats that get together, the liberals that get together, the conservatives, uh, there's, you know, the, the, the clubs have their, you know, viewpoints just like uh, in national politics, and certainly uh, I doubt he would be hanging out with Jimmy Carter, but uh, with other former conservative leaders, you know, David Cameron and company, I suspect uh, there'd be plenty of opportunities to, to chart. You know, a lot of it's kind of blue sky, trying to set an agenda for what national governments can or should do in the coming years. Does he look at himself as, as an advisor in waiting if, in fact, Andrew Scheer is successful next year? I suspect he's already advising Andrew Scheer in various ways. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think he, he would see a role in, in supporting a future uh, conservative government and providing advice. Um, but again, and I mean, I don't know enough about Stephen Harper. Many former leaders don't want to play what they'd call the grandmother's role. <laughs> they don't want to be there second-guessing everything. And so in many cases, it's easier for them to move on to other challenges because, you know, the national is still too fresh, and they might find it actually too infuriating to try and say, 
uh, you know, provide advice to someone like Andrew Shear, who would obviously take some of it, but uh, not all of it, and you know, maybe a lot of hand wringing in that situation. So, yeah, I suspect he would provide some advice, but probably not be that close uh, precisely, uh, because it's, it's it's a difficult relationship if uh, people are saying, well, wait a second, who's the prime minister? Is it Andrew Shear? Is it Stephen Harper? There's some speculation I saw over the weekend on social media with this increased profile and, and with this visit to the White House that uh, that Mr. Harper is actually maybe contemplating a return to politics. Uh, what, what's your read on that? I, I get the sense that he's been there, done that, and he's looking for other things. Yeah, I'm not sure who would invite him back. Uh, I mean, there was an era where you could have old leaders who would be turned to to come back and play a role. And I mean, I guess Bob Ray tried to make that happen within the Liberal Party, but for the most part... I think once one spent eight years as prime minister, on the one hand, you know, just physically, that's, uh, you know, demands that it would be hard to justify going back unless there was a really compelling reason. You know, and secondly, it's probably more interesting and gratifying after having spent the time doing that uh, to be engaged in these other pursuits that are probably a bit less demanding, probably have a bit more in the way of payoff, both in terms of salary received, but also kind of working conditions and the sort of range and diversity of people you meet and questions you get to solve. So, you know, I mean, in a real compelling moment, I wouldn't be surprised to see someone like Stephen Harper come back, but uh, it's hard to see that moment, uh, you know, materializing. And by that time that came along, presumably there'd be other generations of conservative aspirants uh, who might be more compelling than, you know, a 60-year-old Stephen Harper. Besides, didn't the, the party themselves pretty much turn the page, didn't they? I, I mean, when Ron Ambrose was the interim leader, I mean, she, I, I understand it was all in good fun, but I mean, she was kind of said, hey, the big bad man is gone now. You can be, you can like the conservatives again. Uh, because let's face it, like, like most leaders who have been around for eight or ten years, there's there's some negative connotations to their leadership and their and their, their concepts, etc. And Harper certainly and heard that. Uh, just as he was heading towards that that election loss a few years ago, but I'm wondering if the conservatives would even entertain that idea. I mean, like right now, you're right from a generational standpoint. Andrew Scheer may still well be very much the same, uh, cut from the same cloth as Stephen Harper, but it's a different generation, and and I think political parties look for that at some point, don't they? Yeah, I think so, and I think also just the extent to which we're bombarded with you know, the face and media clips of our leaders now, we grow tired of them in a way we might not have in an earlier era where we were just reading newspaper stories about them. And so, you know, independent of any qualities of the leaders, I think they just get burnt out and tired with Canadians and people, uh, you know, turn them out and tune them out. And so, you know, in that kind of context, uh, it's hard for, I think, a leader to be around for more than a decade before people begin to say, well, we've had we've had enough of this person, particularly when they have to play the role of uh, prime minister or premier and make tough decisions. It's maybe a bit easier for a kind of Ed Broadbent figure to, to hang around for a long time because, you know, he could be popular. He didn't really have to make the decisions uh, that might turn people off of, of what he stood for. One of the most difficult things for any leader, isn't it, to understand their best before date? Uh, yeah, I think for anyone. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> yeah point I mean, taken. Yeah, I mean, most, you know, most leaders uh, leave like we saw the Liberals in the last uh, campaign. Many, you know, experienced politicians end by, you know, losing an election. It's being like being a late cut from training camp. You rarely go out having won the cup. Peter Grafe, uh, always a pleasure, Peter. Thanks so much for this today. You're welcome. Political science professor, of course, at McMaster University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.